are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. And we've entitled this series, it's basically a story of how God's mercy will not let you go. God's mercy is the biggest thing in the book of Jonah. There are a lot of big things that this story records for us. There's a big city, there's a big storm, there's a big fish, there's a big sinner, there's a big revival, or maybe not even revival, but there's great salvation. And now we're going to see another great storm of a different kind and a really great resistance towards God's mercy. The story is not quite done, though we're in a good spot. Uh, We left the story of Jonah where uh, the chapter markers leave us off with these kind of cliffhangers of God's intervention, these cliffhangers of God's interaction uh, upon this story. Uh, If you remember verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw that the people of Nineveh had repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would that he would do to them and he did not do it and if the story would have just ended there oh my friends that would have been a great story to hear of god's overwhelming mercy for a horrible city uh, remember this was uh, one of the biggest cities if not the biggest city of the time uh, both numerically but also geographically and even in terms of its own um, fear bringing influence uh, into the into the culture the the known culture there they were a very violent uh, city we, we kind of uh, probably a sensitive day to bring this up, but just the idea that this was kind of the first terrorist nation. They put shock and awe uh, into the uh, lives and the hearts of those that they uh, attacked and uh, were, were neighboring to. Uh, it was one of those fearful cities. Yet Jonah was not fearful of them uh, in a way that would cause him to run. He did run, but it wasn't out of fear for who they were violently or even as a national power. He ran because he did not want God to be merciful. And really, Jonah chapter 4 is the story of God and Jonah duking it out. Who will win? Will mercy triumph or will merit triumph? And this is really the fight between God and Jonah. Uh, And it's amazing the kind of questions that God ends up asking Jonah And it's amazing the few answers that Jonah is able to give God back. So we're going to read Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat, he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die 
than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Yes, it is one of the funniest lines, I think, in all of Scripture. I just think it's absolutely hysterical. Uh, But that's another point. Almost like, after you read it, you can't get done, but like, what, cows? Cows get in on this? Cows do get in. Remember, this was a... Uh, uh, not just a thing that God was doing to a people group, though certainly God was uh, targeting a people group with his justice for their sin, uh, but he was also targeting the land, right? It's a big uh, thing. God was actually at work targeting the land as well. And when God had mercy on his people, uh, he decided to demonstrate mercy on the land as well. And you can even see just how big-hearted God is, how merciful God delights to be by even bringing something in like land and cattle as part of his divine rescue plan. Uh, It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's a little glimpse into the heart of God that God delights in mercy, uh, even for things like cows and property and land. It's a big deal. By way of review, this is the fourth of uh, four sermons that we are speaking on in, in Jonah The first chapter, we saw that Jonah is just a bad prophet, and really chapter 4 gives us insights into that. Again, he ran because he did not want God to be merciful. He was convinced that Nineveh, they were bad people that did not deserve God's mercy, and he had made up his mind that he knew God was going to be merciful because God said he was going to be merciful, and he didn't want any part of that, his hatred and his bigotry, which of course was founded on his own versions of his self-righteousness. I'm good, they're bad, I should receive mercy, they should not receive mercy. We'll talk about that a lot tonight. But Jonah was a bad prophet simply because he ran away from God's intended mission, and that was mercy. Then second chapter, we saw that he was a bad prayer-er. I don't know how to say that well, but he was a bad prayer-er. He didn't know how to pray very well. It was a very half-hearted prayer, a prayer of recognizing God's sovereignty, a prayer of recognizing God's truth, a prayer that was certainly uh, resting on deep uh, theological foundations, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Yet when it came to his own personal receiving of that mercy— Jonah had no intention of making that mercy his own. In other words, God had mercy. You have to have mercy for other people who are bad. But since I'm not bad, I don't really need that much mercy. I'm okay. I can work my way out of this. Then uh, last week we looked at Jonah is a bad preacher. He's a bad preacher. And you could certainly argue he's actually a good preacher. He just chose a really bad sermon because he was still angry. And that would be right. Jonah goes into Nineveh knowing that God would save and rescue, but having dried off from the belly of the fish, walks into Nineveh, and instead of speaking about the mercy he had just experienced when God was at work to both drown him and then bring him back to life, and of course remember uh, that intersection between chapter 2 and 3 where Jonah is spat up on dry land, that's not Jonah's second chance. That is actually a picture of resurrection. Jesus picks up on that. Uh, To the Pharisees, you don't need a sign of resurrection. You have the sign of resurrection found in the prophet Jonah. Just as I spent three days and three, or just as Jonah spent three nights and three, three days and three nights in uh, the belly of a whale, so I will spend three days and three nights in the tomb. It's a clear picture of resurrection. Jonah had just been raised from the dead, if you will. It wasn't a second chance, it was a new creation that God was offering him, a substitute, a new way, brand new life. He was supposed to go and as an embodiment of God's mercy, proclaim mercy to the Ninevites. And he preached a hellfire and brimstone sort of message and says, you guys have 40 days and God is going to destroy this place. Miraculously, out of that horrible sermon, that very merciless sermon, God causes the Ninevites to repent. And even the king, finally he gets word somehow and in some way gets word that God's going to destroy 
uh, the nation, and he causes a wave of repentance amongst the Ninevites, and God relents from his disaster. If you remember the worst kind of indictment on the sermon is the king at the very end. He says, who knows if God can actually be merciful to us? We are taking our best shot, but who knows if we will actually have disaster or not? May we never hear sermons that leave us questioning whether or not we know whether or not God will be merciful. The whole point of the good news of the gospel is to reassure us, or the whole, even the whole point of John's gospel is to assure us the realities of God delights to save people on account of his mercy. Now tonight we get to see just how bad Jonah is as a person, because in light of all of this, Jonah still has a bone to pick with the very nature, the very heart of who God is. Jonah has a struggle with the reality of God's intent of mercy. He can't get it through his head. He can't work it through his own system. And there's actually something that's very much in the way. For Jonah, he can't grasp God's mercy because he has his hands full of his own version of righteousness. Again, we've talked at nauseum. He, he had a, a design for the people of Nineveh to never hear the gospel. And in his mind, they never deserved to hear the gospel. And certainly, I think we can all step up and say, yes, like a, a nation like Nineveh, I mean, a nation so violent, carelessly violent, carelessly godless, they wouldn't deserve God's mercy, certainly. But if there is going to be mercy that we proclaim, if the whole game of the Christian life and experience is a game of mercy, well then, my friends, how would I be any different in receiving mercy than anyone else out there? For just as Jesus condemns them for their violence and their own sin, couldn't I be condemned for the same thing? Couldn't the hatred in my own heart be a reason for condemnation according to the law of God? I might not have killed anybody with my hands, but I have done violence with my words. I have done violence in my thoughts and actions. My friends, that doesn't happen even in Monday before 8 o'clock, and I'm already murdering people in my mind on the road because they simply can't drive. My friend, the reality of the same hatred in the Ninevites' hearts and selfishness is the same as my own heart. So when, it, when, when the game is on mercy, when the game is rigged to account for mercy, for forgiveness of sins, for free pardon, then, my friends, there's nothing that would keep me in any different position than the Ninevites. And that's the same for anybody here. We believe in full mercy at the foot of the cross that any sinner can come with any amount of sin, and we believe there's enough coverage. What makes Jonah so mad? What is it that makes Jonah so furious at God? Oh, this, is, this is the discussion we've been having all, all along. I want to remind you of Jonah's purpose. Nothing is bigger than God's plan in Christ to showcase his mercy. God's mercy will not let you go. Tonight we look at Jonah's anger. What makes Jonah so mad? I meant to put a verse there. Did make it up there, obviously. Let's look at verse 2. He, he was angry, exceedingly angry. This is another one of those greats back in verse 1. He was exceedingly angry, greatly angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The reason that Jonah is ultimately so mad at the mercy of God is because he is so used to living his life on the virtue of the law. See, Jonah, as a prophet, had a sense of right and wrong. He had a sense of what God demanded. And it was those very demands that actually captured Jonah's heart. It was those very demands, the categorical oughtness that God gives to us on virtue of his law, that Jonah then took and he hijacked for his own heart and for his own purposes and said, I will do these things. I will, be, I will uphold myself to the standards of the law. I will complete them. I will establish my own righteousness. I will do them, and I'll tell other people about them. And when they don't, I'll preach a judgment sermon to them. It was life lived by the realities of the law. 
We talked about this a lot in the book of James. The two different ways that we can live our lives. There's two different mechanisms or there's two different engines in the Christian life. See, the reality is life by the engine of the law makes a lot of sense to us. It makes almost too much sense. Good people are supposed to get good stuff. Bad people are supposed to get bad stuff. That's what law requires. That fits our bill of justice and our standard of rightness and righteousness. And this isn't entirely a bad thing, my friends. This is actually a wonderful thing. It's within all of us. Romans 2.15 actually helps us to understand that this law has been given to us by God and it's imprinted on our hearts so that we, there is a sense to which we do know right and wrong. We're able to discern a sense of justice or a sense of rightness. But how this ends up working out in the ground of Christian life and experiences is that it kind of works out like a little bit like karma. If you do good things, well, then you're supposed to get good things. And if you do bad things, well, isn't it right to kind of expect that you should get a lot of bad things? I was very, very young when I realized this is not how life works. That life isn't as fair as we want it to be. I remember in high school, as a senior in high school, uh, I had never made the soccer team. It was like four, three years of like just empty trying, working so hard, trying and trying and trying. Never made it. And finally, it was my senior year. It's my last shot. And I knew, I knew like all, everybody, the rest of my class, we were not very good at soccer collectively. And the class had just graduated before us. We just graduated a really good part of the team. And I knew there were a lot of free spots. Senior year, it's finally my time. Put in the work, put in the effort. I thought I had everything wrapped up. Went to the tryouts. Me and all my buddies were all ready to go. Got the tryouts done. We thought for sure we were in. Of course, I was, all my other, to be honest, all my other buddies had made the team before, years before. And I was the last one to have made the team or to not make the team. So I was waiting that day when the teams were going to be posted. And all of a sudden, I saw my name not up there. Like four years in a row, my last shot. I had worked so hard. And what made it worse is not that I didn't see I me. Mean, like I, It was horrible. I didn't see my name up there. But it was way worse when I saw that there was a freshman who made the team. And freshmen never make the team. And I knew this freshman. And I, I'm telling you, the dude was not good. All right? Like, objectively, he was not good. It was a crime. It was a crime of justice. It didn't make sense. I went to the coach and talked to him and said, listen, we like you. We like you as a player. We just had enough people at your position. And we just felt like Tori could actually do a better job at his position. I felt, for the first time, I was like, that's, that's wrong. I did everything. I, I'm like, he's acknowledging I'm better than Tori, but they just needed somebody else as a different spot. And so like everything that I had earned, I had earned a, a spot and I didn't get it. And I learned very early on, life doesn't work by this sense of fairness. And a lot of times, this is how we treat our own versions of Christianity. We come into church and we relate to other people and then we exist with people outside of the church and we're always positioning ourselves based upon our merit, what we do and what we don't do and what they do and what they've not done. We're always measuring ourselves and comparing ourselves, criticizing, sizing up people. As one of my favorite pastors says, we all, we all, as Christians, we all know that we fall short of the glory of God, but that doesn't keep us from comparing distances. How true that is. And if I can just get a little bit more of righteousness than you do, well, then I deserve and you don't. It's this operation of almost this Christian kind of karma. We ask ourselves all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? You know people like this. I know people like this. We're like, we wrestle with God because those are good people and they're not supposed to have the life that they have. And here are these people and they're legitimately bad folks. Why, why do they get it so good? Why is their life so easy? Why is it so smooth? My friends, the angst of that kind of rationalization is the angst of the law. 
And that's nothing against the realities of the law. The law is right and it's true and good. It is a, it is a true measuring stick. It is a true, true rule and a true guide. But my friends, the operation under that reality can never bring any sort of salvation that we long for. We think if we can just do all of these things according to the law, that we will measure up and deserve and get. And what we find is that's not the case at all. There's a different operating system at work in God's economy. And yes, his law is right and it's true and it's good and it will all be held for account at the end times. But there's something at work as well here in the now. Something that Jesus has actually set up for us. It was God's plan all along, and it certainly was the plan for Nineveh to receive here. Of course, it was the plan that Jonah was supposed to be receiving this whole time. The plan of mercy. Life according to law is the reason you're so jealous. It's the reason you like so many other people's Instagram posts and self-reflect and wonder, why isn't my life like that? Why can't I get a life like that? It's the reason you're so critical. It's because you're holding the standard and everyone else ought to be holding the standard and they're just not. Can you please get your act together? It's the reason we're so anxious, the reason we're so judgmental. All of it is based on a system of merit and deservedness. It's the reason why Jonah was so angry. These people do not deserve what they are getting. I deserve something else. It's unbelievable. It's, it's almost childish. And if you, if you understand your actions and my actions most of the time, of our own jealousy, criticism, hypocrisy, all of those things, it's often childish as well. It feels childish. Look at you, it says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. Do you you hear the depths to which Jonah was willing to go to uphold his personal standard of righteousness? If God, if you are not going to play fair, take me out. If you're not not going to abide by why why I think is right, according to what I think is right, I don't want to play. I'm going to, I'm going to take my ball and go home. It's better, better for me to not be involved here at all than to play games that I can't control, manipulate, understand, or have any impact on. I'm out. It's the old take my ball and go home at the court. So mad that he wants to die. Of course, this is exactly what Jonah wanted. He wanted the people of Nineveh to feel the question, who knows? He wanted them to feel that because they didn't deserve. We love life by law because we think life by law is controllable and manageable. And if there's anything that we love in this life, it it is our own control over our own righteousness. So we do what we can to line up our own righteousness resume, just like Jonah Say, I meet all the credentials. I fit the bill. I'm doing all the right things. Then we line up all of the criticisms against our enemies and those who, ah, it's probably why you shouldn't receive mercy. It's probably why you you shouldn't make it. There's an amazing question at the end of verse four that never gets an answer from Jonah. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The, the better The better maybe a rephrasing of that. That's, a good, that's actually a good translation, but the meaning of that translation is, are you, are you in the position to establish who's angry or not? Is that, is that you? Do you get to establish those rules? Do, do you do well to be angry? Do you get, are you the final answer here? Do you get to make up your mind as to whether or not you're going to be angry at this or not? The silence from Jonah is deafening. No answer given. No reply given. It's almost like he knows God is playing a different game, but he is hell-bent on sticking to his own methods, his life by law. I want to introduce you to John John Fitzgerald Page, who by a, uh, a social blog many years ago was labeled, quote, the worst 
person in the world. Can you imagine like having that in on, like an internet? You can go search the worst person in the world and his name comes up. You say, what would make somebody the worst person in the world? Well, here you go. And this might just be right. He put on a dating site. He's trying to, trying to find a date. And this was his profile bio. I live in a 31-story high-rise condominium right in the middle of Buckhead Atlanta Nightlife District. Do you ever come to this area, this part of town, to shop, go out, visit, or explore? I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management, Wharton School of Business. Where did you go to school? What activities do you like to participate in to stay in shape? I work out four times a week at LA Fitness. Do you exercise regularly? I'm six feet tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? I am truly sorry if that sounds rude, impolite, or even downright crass, but I've been deceived before by inaccurate representation, so I prefer someone upfront and honest before initial contact. All right, now that's bad, right? That's like, oh, pass, right? That's like, oof, not, not great, right? I prefer the, like, sit at video, sit at home, play video games, I like puppies kind of guy. I don't know, maybe. This guy seems like a lot. Well, as you would imagine, uh, he got a lot of passes, did not get a lot of dates. There was one in particular that triggered him, and he got one of those little downvotes or rejects, whatever the app was at the time. And he actually issued a reply, and this is what landed him the title worst person in the world. This is a reply to one of the rejections that he got. I think you forgot how this works. You were the one who hit on me. And therefore, you have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not vice versa. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question let me know one thing. You are not in shape. I am a trainer on the side. In fact, I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. So next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you a free training session so you don't blow it with the next 8.9 on hot or not, Ivy League grad, Mensa member, can bench squat leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, lives in a Buckhead high-rise, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures, was in Jezebel's best dressed, etc. Oh, that's right. There aren't any more of those. Regards, John. Worst person in the world. <laughs> Worst human being. I don't even know what even happens beyond that. Like, if you receive that as a woman, are you just like, I'm not even like, just no, just count down. I don't know, just get out of my life, John. Out. No. Give John a lot of credit, though. He gets it. If you're, if you're playing the game of law, if you're playing the game of standards and righteousness and merit, my friends, is there anyone better than John? Is there anybody who's crushing it more than John? I mean, maybe in a Christian setting, we might like to see a little bit more presence of church life or community group. Maybe that would help. But, I mean, John is nailing it. He's crushing it. What would be more desirable than John? But there's kind of something despicable about John, isn't there? There's kind of something despicable about us, isn't there? Kind of something despicable about Jonah here. What makes him mad is when other people get mercy. Other people that according to his standards, to John's standards, to my standards, they should not be getting that. But here they are, getting what I feel they don't deserve. And that is what made Jonah exceedingly angry. That's what made John angry. I don't deserve this. I have, I have merited. I have earned. I deserve. You have not. You shouldn't be doing this to me. This was Jonah's argument against God. The tables should be flipped, God. What's going on? 
it's even pretty more desp- it's it's more despicable when we find out that there's actually something that makes Jonah glad. There's something that does turn the tables for Jonah. He does get angry, exceedingly angry, but he does get actually exceedingly glad at some point as well here. You look down at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what became of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the plant. It's amazing, the thing that made Jonah happy was the very thing he hated for other people. Mercy. Again, Jonah had his economy all wrong, and it's the same thing we do in trying to champion this idea of righteousness and our own standards and our own sense of this is what's right and wrong and this is what I've done and this is what I've accomplished. It actually tears down at, its, at the very foundation what we're trying to prop up. It's pretty sad. He makes a booth for himself, this little man-made booth. We don't know what it was. Some sort of structure that would give him some relief from the shade. Uh, in that desert area, it was well known for its, for its high heat. Uh, of course, there's a little thing that God brings up here with the high heat and then also the scorching wind. Uh, they were prevalent in that area as well. But he knows this, prepares for this. He wants to just wait for the 40 days to be up just wants to wait for the kaboom, wants God to enact justice at this moment. So he makes a booth for himself, but in the middle of waiting and thinking that finally someone's going to pay for their sin, this kind of uh, John moment here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right, I'm going to crush it for Jesus. He finds his own inability to escape discomfort. His life isn't what he thinks it is. And in setting up this booth, We have there at the uh, middle of verse 6 that there actually is some level of discomfort that Jonah was experiencing at that moment. Sure, I I mean, you can imagine if if it's me, if it's John Fitzgerald Page here, he's probably belittling it. He's probably under, I'm not not uncomfortable. I'm I'm fine. I'm, I'm all right. I'm doing good here with my booth. I'm all right. There was enough discomfort that God has pity on him. And then his, his mercy for him raises up this little plant, makes a little shade. And what do you know? There's some, there's some beautiful shade. There's a provision of mercy. Jonah loves it. He grows exceedingly happy. Out of all this scene, out of all the things that Jonah has experienced, chapters one through four, Isn't it really sad? It's a little bit of an indictment on Jonah's condition of his own soul that the thing that makes him the most happy is probably the most insignificant thing in this story. This little plant that God just brings up in like half a second, just plant, and then the next day it's gone. It's a little blip on the radar screen, and yet that, that just little plant, inanimate object, That is the thing that just gets Jonah fired up, exceedingly glad. It's truly amazing. My friends, when we live our own lives by law, the truth is you and I are often blinded by how miserable our own self-righteous living has made us. Some of you are miserable. Some of you live your life in chronic disappointment and sadness. And a lot of that is our own making. A lot of it is like Jonah because our priorities are all out of whack. And though we might point to the law of God as this right and true thing in our lives that's really good and meaningful, what we've actually set up is our own standard of how that righteousness ought to be attained. And then what we try to do, and we often do, is line up our own performance right up next to it. And what we see around us is other people not living up to that standard. And when life doesn't go according to our way or our sense of merit, we get really sad and disappointed. And we live our our lives frustrated at what God is doing in our hearts and lives because life isn't working out the way we designed it to be. And we get angry over things that are meaningless. 
And we get very excited about things that are just as meaningless. I remember back in the day, I grew up in a very conservative area. And I always found it funny, the things we were supposed to be like celebrating. Because it, just, it just seemed so like weirdly cultural. It just felt so weirdly like, I don't think that matters. Like, I think if you just like, like, if you're just not listening to rock and roll, like, to be honest, I don't, I don't think that's the thing that God like champions the most in heaven is like, you know, that person, yeah, that's pretty bad. But you know what? He doesn't listen to rock and roll. So that guy's a great dude. I just don't, I just like, I don't think that that matters. And fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I mean, this works itself out in relationships, right? I mean, it's, it's almost petty the way it works itself out in, in marriage, right? I, mean, I lose my mind. I lose my mind when I discover, which happens every day, that my wife likes to squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle. I mean, I literally lose my mind. Why? Because it's my standard being violated. It's my righteousness. I don't deserve this. I squeeze the toothpaste tube from the bottom up every day of my life. I shouldn't have to walk into the bathroom and discover a half-squeezed toothpaste tube. I shouldn't have to do that. I have done what's right. And you know what I do? I get angry over something that doesn't matter. Why? Because the law has told me my righteousness matters. My standard matters. And I better attain it, and I better hold people to that standard as well. And we don't realize how miserable the operation of the law makes us. Living life by that way of salvation, my friends, number one, it's not salvation, and it doesn't free us. It puts us in bondage. Our own self-righteousness blinds us to the realities of our true needs. Again, Jonah is exceedingly glad because God provided him a shade tree in the middle of the desert. Where should he have been? He should be partying. Like he's never partied before with people who have experienced salvation that never knew salvation was going to come to them because God is just extremely merciful. He should be partying with those folks. But instead he's out in the wilderness prioritizing a stupid shade tree. My friends, our own self-righteousness puts within us these, our own priorities that are whack, and it blinds us to these priorities. He was exceedingly mad at mercy, but exceedingly glad at a plant, mercy that he received for himself. Our own self-righteousness blinds us to the blessedness of God's mercy. God had provided for him a moment, a moment of reprieve, and it's that very little thing little tiny act of mercy that should have triggered in Jonah's heart. God is extremely merciful. That's right. He's merciful. But he missed that mercy and he turned it right into merit. He flipped God's blessedness of kindness and he said, yeah, I deserve that. That's me. Thank you, God. Thanks for dropping me the credit. As if he deserved that kind of um, pleasure for that for that little bit of second. When we live life by law, we often confuse mercy for merit. When we live life by the operation of the law, as if the law can save us, that what you do matters, we end up confusing God's mercy for his for your merit. Some of you feel a little bit distant from God. Some of you feel like, God, where are you? You feel a little distant. Could it possibly be that you've traded merit for mercy? His mercy has been there. He's provided for you. He's given you a million little mercies every day. And what you've turned those little mercies into are little exchanges of merit. Well, of course, I deserve, I, I deserve that little blessing. I mean, like, I, mean, I went to church on Sunday. I mean, I, I witnessed to, I mean, how many people did I witness to last week? Of course God needs to be nice to me. Whew. And look what all I've done. And instead of taking those as interventions of God's mercy, none of us deserve that. Again, Jonah shouldn't even be here. And now all of a sudden he exchanges it for an operation of merit. Oh, my friend, see his mercy. Verse 7, but when the dawn came up, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Two things that, two things that triggered Jonah's want for just quitting. That mercy would be extended to other people, but that, uh, at a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Wow, should have written that down. Um, not justice, right? Anti-justice. What is that word? What am I looking for? Injustice. Yeah, I was like, what is that word? But an injustice was carried out against him, right? That, those are the two things that got him triggered. Mercy for other people and then not receiving mercy when he felt like he deserved it. Those two things, Jonah's like, I'm out. Which goes back to this, he was living life by his own rules, by his own standards. Karma got flipped on its head. The law backfired against Jonah. Jonah confessing yet again that life isn't worth living if life isn't fair. Another question from the Lord, very much like like verse 4. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand for their left and also much cattle? In verse 9, he, he, he backs up and asks the very same question that he asked in verse 4. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And now we get a reply. Now, now we get a little answer, a fiery answer from Jonah. Yes, yes, I do well to be angry. I deserve that plant. I'm angry enough to die. I wonder if a lot of our own conversations back towards God are just the reinforcement of our own standards against him instead of living life on account of his mercy. Jonah felt sorrow for the plant that brought him joy and comfort. And it's amazing to see here what pleases God. Jonah thought that he deserves this kind of comfort. You know what? There's something else at work here too that God is fighting for, for his own source of, or his own sense of justice. We know this from Romans 3, this idea that God isn't intent just to bring justice to this world, though he certainly is. He will not let one injustice slip by. But justice isn't the final answer from God. God's delight is that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God delights that there be justice, but also that there be mercy for those who raise their hand and say, I need mercy. That's the intention of God's heart, to bring that here to Jonah and also to to the Ninevites here. Do you do well to be angry? Yeah, I do well to be angry. Of course, I deserve it. I earn it. And God said, let me, let me tell you my standards. Let me, let me tell you what I'm about. You're out for all this lawmaking, all this self-righteousness. Let me give you a, a little idea about what kind of game I'm playing. You're playing game by merit. I'm playing a game by mercy. And here's what I intend to do. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, came to being and perished in a night. You didn't work for jack squat, dude. I gave that to you. But let me tell you what I work for. Let me, let me tell you what I spilt my own blood for. Let, let me tell you what I moved heaven and earth to go earn and to go merit and to champion. I got people that I paid my own blood to, get, to go get, and they're in that city, and I intend to save them. So should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity those people who don't know the right from the left? I've done that work. You didn't do anything for that plant. I've merited something. I've earned something. It's amazing to see what God in his mercy gets fired up and passionate about. It's about people. And it's not just people. It's about the rest of the world. It's about what God's doing in redemption. It has implications. Certainly the penultimate reality of redemption is his people, but also has huge implications for even things like cattle. God's heart of mercy is to redeem the world, to redeem the earth, 
to set things right, to remove sin, to remove death, to establish his own sense of justice, and to establish at the ultimate of what he's doing is a seat of mercy. And that is something that God in Christ worked for and redeemed and went out and merited. And the blessingness of that is that he gives the reward to people like you and me and the Ninevites and Jonah who don't deserve it. That, that is the mercy of God. This is why our Bible is full, full, chock full of this idea of if you understand the mercy of God, then you understand just about everything in the entire scriptures. You understand the entire heart of God. I mean, it's, it's absolutely full. I could, I could go text after text demonstrating that if you understand the steadfast love of the Lord, or the mercy of the Lord, you get absolutely everything in Scripture. If you see that kind of sacrificial where God merited something that you didn't merit and he gave you the reward, my friends, you'd get it all. I'll give you just a couple. Maybe just, maybe just for time's sake, I'll give you just one. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath satisfier for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Just, it's just one example. If you understand the mercy that flows from the heart of God, what he, in his mercy, worked for, accomplished, and succeeded in, in his preparation, or his, uh, his purchasing of you, purchasing of his people, my friend, then you understand the realities of the book of Jonah and the realities of the whole Bible, his whole message for you. There is so much mercy in God. Mercy enough for you to come right where you're at to receive his mercy. But that also means as you look out, the Christian game is not a game of merit. It's not, enough, it's not a game of who brings the most to the table, who deserves to come to a table like this, who deserves to come into church like this, who, who is set right before God by what they're able to do. My friends, that is not the game of Christianity. The game of Christianity is the merit of Jesus and his reward handed to people who don't deserve it. In that way, none of life is fair. It costs Jesus everything, and we get everything. That is not fair, but it is mercy. And it's the way that God intends for us then to operate back in this world. And it's countercultural, and people are going to hate it. Because you know what makes sense? Law, deservedness, merit. That makes sense. That, that, that's easy to fit into our box. You want to know what this whole political shakeup is? You want to know why everyone's angry with each other? You, you want to know why it feels like two people of opposing parties can't sit in the same room? It's because they're operating by law and no one's operating by mercy. No, no one's going to lay down the arms and say, yeah, I know I don't like deserve that, but that's not what life's about. I love you. No, no one's willing to do that. Everyone's saying, we've got, we've done, and those angers, anger. And we're like Jonah. And what's if if life's not fair, we're out. We quit. Oh my friend, there's a new operation, the mercy of God, and it's bigger than anything we'll face in this life. That's the whole point. You might be frustrated with where God has you today. I promise you, God is out to help you understand that He's after you by mercy. He's hunting you down by mercy. And you said, well, then why do I have to suffer all the time? Well, it's like Jonah. You're probably running away from his mercy. You're probably not resting in his mercy. You're probably going after your own stuff. The things that God is trying to work in you, he's trying to work in you in a sense that you can hear and rest in and trust his mercy. And that might mean, like Jonah, 
you might have to be thrown overboard, capsized, and actually brought to the end of yourself. That might actually be the way that God intends to work. And my friends, what a beautiful and glorious little little bit of ruin that would be. Wouldn't that be amazing? If God, like Jonah, threw you overboard, capsized you by a giant fish, and said, now nah, you're done, but I will bring a new life out of that. I will promise you mercy. My friend, that's what he wants. Let's pray. to the